0: This is the EM Cases, EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed, practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got Swami reminding us of some key clinical features of Lemire's disease.
1: Typically, when we do these EM cases episodes, we talk about a case that we had and then get into the diagnosis and the management. But today, I've actually got a case that I read about, one that I read about in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm going to read you right from the article. An 18-year-old man presented to the emergency department with a one-week history of sore throat, fever, and malaise, and a three-day history of pleuritic chest pain and productive cough. He reported no history of intravenous drug use, recent travel, or known sick contacts. On examination, he was febrile and ill-appearing and had an oxygen saturation of 88% while breathing ambient air. Now, that patient is clearly toxic, but the primary presentation here is sore throat and fever. And pharyngitis, as we know, is a very common presentation to emergency departments and primary care providers. In fact, in the U.S. alone, there's over 10 million prescriptions of antibiotics for pharyngitis. Now, obviously, that's not all the cases of pharyngitis, just the cases that are getting antibiotics utility of treatment of strep throat in developed countries with modern sanitation is debatable. And we've discussed this in the past on Rebel EM, and I don't want to get into that today. This, of course, is critical care EM cases, so we're not going to talk about strep pharyngitis. We're going to get into this case presentation of this patient. This patient is toxic, much sicker than what we typically see with strep or even with a peritonsillar abscess. This patient has a rare, life-threatening diagnosis, which is Lemier's disease. Since we see it so rarely, let's talk about it a bit. Lemgeres is a thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein with bacteremia, typically from anaerobic bacteria, most commonly fusobacterium, which is a gram-negative bacillus. Most cases occur after some other kind of pharyngeal infection or oropharyngeal infection, and it's most common in kids, young adults, and adolescents. The patients will typically present with fever and pharyngitis. Those are the most common complaints. They may have anterior cervical lymphadenopathy. About 50% will present with a neck mass. And trismus is not uncommon either. Again, typically when we make this diagnosis, the patient is toxic appearing. You can even see things like cranial nerve 10, 11, and 12 palsies. You can also see quote-unquote metastatic disease, and this is infectious emboli from that IJ that then seed other places. You can get septic arthritis, pneumonia, bacteremia, or even meningitis. The labs in this case aren't going to give you a diagnosis. They're nonspecific and they're insensitive. And so we're stuck with making this diagnosis clinically or at least raising our suspicions based on the clinical presentation. But again, pharyngitis, fever, pretty common things. If the patient is toxic appearing or they have metastatic disease, metastatic involvement like pneumonia, you're probably going to make this diagnosis, or at least it's more likely that we make this diagnosis. The problem really is in teasing this diagnosis apart from all the other patients that come in with pharyngitis. In fact, that first presentation may not even be early Lemier's disease. It might just be the oropharyngeal infection that preceded the development of Lemier's disease. So it's not that we're missing this disease early. It simply hasn't developed on that first presentation. So who should we suspect it in? If patients have prolonged pharyngitis, or they improve and then worsen again, the quote-unquote double sickening, then we should be thinking about this. Pharyngitis typically only lasts for about five to seven days. In any patient with trismus, this should be within our differential for what could be causing that trismus, along with peritonsillar abscess, retropharyngeal abscess, and other deep space infections. If the patient has pain with turning their neck, we should also suspect this disorder. Most patients with simple pharyngitis don't have pain when they turn their neck, but some of these other deep space infections and Lemierre's can. In Lemierre's disease, it's actually irritation of the sternocleidomastoid by that thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein. Finally, in the toxic patient, think about this disorder when the patient has pharyngitis plus. So pharyngitis plus pneumonia, pharyngitis plus a septic joint, pharyngitis plus a pleural effusion. Also, in the patients who are septic or have overwhelming sepsis in front of you, but had a prodrome of sore throat, think about Lemire's disease as the possible etiology. Once you have a suspicion, the diagnosis is typically going to be made with CT of the neck with contrast, although Duplex can pick it up as well. As far as treatment, it's pretty straightforward. Give them broad-spectrum antibiotics. If they're toxic, this is typically going to be Piptazo. In the patient who isn't toxic, the typical regimen is either a penicillin plus clindamycin or ampicillin sulbactam. Some patients with this disorder are also treated with anticoagulation, but the use of that is still controversial. One final point before we end is that there's no evidence that we can prevent the development of Lemire's disease by treating all pharyngitis patients with antibiotics. There are many case reports out there of people who developed Lamier's disease who were treated with an oral antibiotic for their simple pharyngitis, but still developed this disorder. We have to make sure that we still practice good antibiotic stewardship in spite of this disease being out there.
0: A really good point that Swami made right at the end there. Really picking up Lamier's is all about just thinking about the diagnosis in the first place. So when are you going to think about the diagnosis? So the typical findings of pharyngitis plus a neck mass, pharyngitis plus their toxic appearing or septic, pharyngitis plus another infection somewhere else, pharyngitis that lasts longer than a week and still getting worse or improved and then get really sick again. And lastly, just like any neck deep space infection, trismus plus pain on neck rotation. Next up, we've got Emily Austin on clonidine toxicity.
2: A three-year-old girl is found by her father with a decreased level of consciousness. She's brought into your emergency department by ambulance, and on arrival, she's bradycardic with a heart rate of 64, hypotensive at about 80 on 40, and her respirate is 10. As well, she's got pinpoint pupils. You begin to resuscitate her with some oxygen, getting two IVs, and then on further history, the father says that he found an open bottle of clonidine tablets near the patient. Other than standard resuscitative measures, you wonder if there's anything else that you can give to this patient. Clonidine is a drug that's prescribed for multiple indications, both on label and off label these days. These include ADHD, opioid and ethanol withdrawal, hypertension, among others. Clonidine mainly acts as an agonist on the presynaptic alpha-2 adrenergic receptors in the brainstem. What it does is lead to a decrease in sympathetic outflow and lower levels of plasma norepinephrine. And the clinical effects of a reduced heart rate, vascular tone, and blood pressure. As well as we'll touch on a bit later, clonidine also seems to increase the release of an endogenous opioid in our brain called beta endorphin. The classic picture of a clonidine overdose is a patient who has a decreased level of consciousness, bradycardia, hypotension, and pinpoint pupils. If you're seeing a clonidine poison patient, there's gonna be a few other tox related causes on your differential, namely, overdoses with opioids, ethanol, benzodiazepines, and barbiturates, maybe other sedative hypnotics, but also some non-toxicological causes, like an intracranial hemorrhage. Treatment for the clonidine poison patient is really rooted in good supportive care. There's many case reports of patients requiring intubation, inotropes or vasopressors, and ICU admissions. Now, recently, a pretty neat study came out that's been influencing how we manage these patients. In March of 2018, a group in Tennessee published a retrospective cohort study in the journal Clinical Toxicology. This group reported on just over 50 pediatric patients with clonidine overdose who were treated with high doses of naloxone. This paper was really interesting because the median dose of naloxone that these kids were given was a 5 milligram IV bolus, and more than 30% of the kids actually received bolus doses of 10 milligrams of naloxone. Some even got more. 70% of the patients received a naloxone infusion after the bolus. Think about that. When we're treating opioid poison patients, we're giving doses in the range of 0.04 to 0.4 milligrams to start. These kids received 10 times that amount, 5 or 10 milligrams right up front. The authors showed that 87% of the patients who were given naloxone at these high doses seemed to respond and had an improvement in their GCS. In several kids, the bradycardia improved as well. Another really interesting part of this study to me was that the authors report zero adverse events associated with these high doses of naloxone. I suppose, however, that that isn't really that surprising because we know that in opioid naive patients, naloxone is considered entirely safe. Naloxone has been discussed for a really long time in the context of clonidine overdose, but most case reports describe typical dosing in line with what's used to treat or reverse an opioid overdose. This study suggests that we need to be giving a lot more naloxone to our clonidine poison patient, and that a 10 milligram naloxone dose is safe and it may allow you to avoid intubating the somnolent clonidine poison patient who you're concerned isn't protecting their airway. One last point. Clonidine doesn't interact with any of the opioid receptors. So why would naloxone, an opioid receptor antagonist, have any benefit? I think a little bit more work needs to be done to really hash this out, but the authors of the study suggest that naloxone may decrease the clonidine-induced release of that endogenous opioid beta-endorphin and suggest that as a possibility for why it could work. Back to our case now. This young three-year-old patient is in our emergency department with somnolence, bradycardia, and hypotension. She was given 10 milligrams naloxone IV as a bolus and then started on an infusion of five milligrams per hour. Her GCS improved to the point that she was awake and interacting. Her heart rate was 95 and her blood pressure was still a bit low, but there was no evidence of hypoperfusion. She was referred to a PICU mainly for monitoring and fortunately was discharged the next day. (laughs)
0: So the big take-home point from that quick hit is give big doses of naloxone for clonidine overdose. We're talking like 10 milligrams, way bigger than what we normally give for opioid withdrawal. Now, you might remember Dr. Austin's brilliantness in our low and slow episode where we mostly talked about beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and DIG. Actually, we just released a two-part rapid review video on low and slow if you need a uh, quick refresher. Anyhow, Clonidine is another drug to add to the classic three low and slow overdoses. The key clinical clues with clonidine that the others generally lack is a decreased LOA and pinpoint pupils. Next up of our continuing series of EM docs, we have Britt Long talking about myths of the coagulation panel.
3: The other day I was caring for a patient with what I thought was low-risk chest pain. The nurse asked if I wanted to add a coag panel, and I thought to myself... Is this really going to change management, and do I need a coag panel in this patient with low-risk chest pain? Whether you like it or not, labs play a major role in the ED, but a big problem comes from us ordering tests just because. One test that we often order for the wrong reason is the coagulation panel. The literature is ripe with studies showing that we way overorder these tests, which is a colossal waste of time and money. Why is that? I'm going to talk about three situations where a coag panel isn't always needed. Low risk chest pain, pre-surgical evaluation, and pre-admission. Then we'll talk about what you can do to improve ordering of these tests. Now first, some background. A coag panel usually includes a partial thromboplastin time, or PTT, an activated partial thromboplastin time, or an APTT, a prothrombin time, or a PT, In an international normalized ratio, otherwise known as an INR. Now with these points in mind, let's move on to our first major consideration. Is coag testing necessary in all patients with chest pain? In the ED, coag tests are often a routine part of our laboratory testing in patients with chest pain. However, when you look at the literature, the rate of abnormal test results is extremely low with little to usually no alteration in clinical management. One study evaluated over 200 patients receiving investigations for acute coronary syndrome. Of the total patient cohort, 29 had abnormal INR tests and 23 demonstrated abnormal APTT testing. However, when you look at these patients, there was no change in clinical management based on these abnormal tests. Another study involving over 700 ED patients with chest pain found that there was, again, no change in management with abnormal testing. So, for take-home point number one, in the patient who you think is low risk for chest pain, you don't need to order a routine coag panel.
0: Got it. No coag panel routinely for patients with chest pain.
3: Now, for our second point, we're going to look at whether testing is necessary in patients for perioperative or peri-procedural assessment. These tests are commonly ordered before surgery. However, just like our patients with chest pain, perioperative screaming does not affect clinical course or the surgical procedure. One retrospective study evaluating over 1 million perioperative patients found that over 94% of PT testing and over 99% of APTT testing did not change clinical management. There have even been several systematic reviews looking at these patients who underwent coag testing right before a surgery or procedure. Both of these systematic reviews found that coag testing did not change clinical or surgical management. Perioperative bleeding was similar in patients with abnormal coagulation tests versus those with normal tests. So for our second take-home point, You don't need to obtain a routine COAG test in patients who are about to undergo surgery from the ED. For our third point, is COAG testing necessary in patients who are being admitted as screening for coagulopathy? Again, COAG tests are often ordered in patients who are admitted. But why is that? COAG tests are obtained to look for an underlying coagulopathy that may have been missed. One study evaluated the use of these COAG tests in patients admitted to an inpatient ward. Investigators found that of those patients who received testing without an indication, only 1% had abnormal testing of their INR, and 5% had an abnormal APTT test. The big takeaway from this study, though, is that on basis of these tests, only one patient had a change in management, and on repeat evaluation, this patient had missed ecchymosis. So for your third takeaway, routine coag testing is not necessary in the patient who is about to be admitted. But what can you do at the bedside to improve coag panel assessment? Well, first, avoid combining INR and APTT. Only order the specific tests that you need and be wary of bundled testing. Next, avoid ordering coag panels for patients who are only on antiplatelet medications and not anticoagulants. Finally, don't order routine COAG panels in patients who are about to be admitted, those with low-risk chest pain, and those undergoing perioperative assessment. Just remember, you at the bedside are the best judge of when to obtain a COAG panel. And whether you like it or not, you play a big role in being a steward of when to order appropriate testing.
0: Love it. So this is the second mention of being a steward, Swami on not treating every adult with pharyngitis with antibiotics, and now Dr. Long on when to hold back on coag panel testing. I can't even imagine the millions of dollars we'll save when we all order INRs and PTTs appropriately. Next up, I'm very excited to announce the debut of our special collaboration with the Canadian Journal of EM, a quick hit that reviews for you CGEM's Just the Facts section. We've got Hans Rosenberg, who's going to interview Mike Ho, an Ottawa EM doc and researcher on a topic that's evolved in the past few years since we did a main episode podcast on it. And that topic is reversal of anticoagulants. Now, In some of these situations, a COAG panel, at least an INR, is almost certainly indicated. Let's hear what Hans and Mike have to say about reversing anticoagulants.
4: This is Hans Rosenberg, and I'm bringing you the first CGEM and EM Cases Quick Kids collaboration version of Just the Facts. Today, I have Dr. Mike Ho with me. Hey, Hans. Thanks for having me. So, the first question is Should
5: anticoagulation be reversed? What factors do you consider? So for me, before I decide to reverse a patient who's bleeding on anticoagulants, you have to first decide if the bleeding is actually a life-threatening bleed or a major bleed um, because the agents that you give to reverse the anticoagulant effect have complications that are usually in the form of thrombosis, which is tough to treat in those situations.
4: So let's talk about a few scenarios. I've got a life-threatening bleed and the blood thinner is warfarin. How do I reverse this agent?
5: So for warfarin, it's important to determine first, if you can, the INR level, which will help guide uh, dosing of the reversal agent, which is typically given as octoplex here in Canada.
4: How about if the blood thinner in this case was dabigatran? How would you reverse it then?
5: Dabigatran is a direct thrombin uh, inhibitor, or in other words, a factor 2a inhibitor. Uh, Its anticoagulant effect isn't easily measured with common available lab tests. However, there is a way to get a clue. If they do have a normal activated partial thrombin time or an APTT, you're probably excluding a large burden of dabigatran. However, you can't really say that there's no dabigatran on board. If you're able to get a thrombin time that's completely normal, that basically excludes any dabigatran in the system at all. So in in terms of reversal of dabigatran, The drug that's out there right now is Iderucizumab or Praxbind in terms of a trade name. The biggest problem that came with this drug is the studies that supported it or the study that supported it didn't have a control group. So they gave us this data in terms of efficacy and time to hemostasis, but we didn't really have any control group or any kind of usual care group that would give us an idea of, is this actually doing anything for our patient? The other thing surrounding it, it was that there is some suggestion that it does have thromboembolic complications, somewhere in the range of 6-7%. But again, without any control group, it's really hard to interpret that data. So given what
4: you know about Idarisizumab, would you use it on your next patient with a life-threatening bleed? Or would you just go with PCCs, which is another suggested reversal?
5: That's a good question. And you're going to get a lot of different thoughts on this. But for me, the biochemical reversal in the study is actually quite robust and the drug itself although it has a, a thrombosis rate stated around 6 to 7% that may be the same as PCC I can't really say that for sure but it has the same range of thrombotic complications the drug itself also isn't astronomically expensive one dose is about $5000 compare that to one dose of PCC which is around $1500 so it's more expensive but Again, not astronomically more.
4: Excellent. Now, if this patient was on a 10A inhibitor, so for example, as we know, either a Pixaban, Rivaroxaban, or a Doxaban, how would you reverse these agents?
5: So with those 10A inhibitors in Canada, the only way that we that we know to reverse it is with PCC or, in other words, Octoplex or Beriplex, for example. The data for this, again, is similar to the other drugs that we talked about in that they don't have control groups. They have mortality and thrombotic rates that are stated that we can't really compare to. The reversal agent that's available in the States is called IndexNet Alpha, and that was recently approved. It's not approved in Canada. The problem with IndexNet Alpha is the stated thrombotic rate is somewhere in the range of 10 plus percent, and the cost is sky high. It's in the range of $50,000 US per dose. So I think With Indexonet showing possibly a higher rate of thrombosis, we're not sure how good it is and its cost. I wouldn't use it at this time.
4: Excellent. And you answered the question that I was going to ask you. Perfect. So are there any tools that can help clinicians in everyday uh, making these kinds of decisions?
5: So there is a really useful tool that's offered by Thrombosis Canada. It's called the Thrombosis Canada Bleed Management Tool. And what it helps uh, the clinicians at the bedside actually is to estimate anticoagulant levels and it can guide management in individual cases by combining patient characteristics their lab parameters uh, and taking a little bit of the guesswork out of you know for example having dabigatran with a creatinine clearance of this you know you can just put the numbers in and it can give you an idea of how much drug is on board and what you should do in that situation as as a guide anyway for sure
4: excellent and that's available at Thrombosis Canada ca backslash tools and then you'll find it in that area there
0: excellent so for warfarin reversal it's four complex pcc that's octoplex in canada and Berryplex in the u.s don't forget the iv vitamin k with that as well as an immediate repeat of the inr now for dabigatran if the inr is normal there's unlikely to be any significant amount of dabigatran circulating in the blood but you can't be a hundred percent sure for that one and when it comes to reversing dabigatran, I think most of us would reach for PCCs, but there is the option of the more expensive idariucizumab, but that has really weak evidence and is really controversial in terms of whether or not we should use it. And for the rest of the DOACs, those are the 10A inhibitors. In the US, there's the very, very, very expensive Andexanet Alpha, which we don't really know whether or not it's clinically effective or safe, probably not safe. All right. And for our last quick hit on this podcast, we've got a prominent researcher in cardiac arrest who's also worked more than 30 years clinically in EM in Toronto, Dr. Sheldon Cheskis, a world-class expert on CPR and one of the best speakers I've ever heard. Take it away, Dr. C.
6: Anton, thanks so much for having me today on uh, EM Cases. And I'm going to talk about a couple uh, interesting controversies, I would say, in pre-hospital care as well as eMERGE medicine. And the first one is when or when should we not use uh, mechanical CPR? So I think the sexy component of mechanical CPR and the things people always look at is that you can get uninterrupted, high-quality CPR, but at the end of the day, the question is, Do you actually improve survival with the use of mechanical CPR when you compare it to high-quality CPR? I think the issue with mechanical CPR, it looks great, but there are a lot of constraints and issues you've got to think about. The weight of the device, the ease of use, the impact on CPR quality uh, when one has to put the device, and obviously, at the end of the day, the cost. I think mechanical CPR got off to a bit of a rocky start. The original study looking at mechanical CPR was the ASPIRE trial in which the autopulse device was used to look at the impact on outcomes. And the interesting thing is that original study in mechanical CPR was stopped early. And they were stopped early because patients actually had worse outcomes when using mechanical CPR as opposed to standard of care. And the reason their outcomes were worse is we didn't account for the large interruptions in CPR that occurred when actually placing the device. And that happened before the knowledge of high quality CPR and the importance of high quality CPR uh, in patient outcomes. So you stop CPR for a long period of time to place a device, you actually may be doing more harm than actually doing good. What we found in other styles um, looking at both the Lucas and other styles looking at the autopulse is it's been quite clear that if you get the device on quickly and you don't waste a lot of time getting it on, you're going to get high quality CPR. But the question is, will you improve survival? And that has never been proven through the use of a mechanical device when you compare it to high quality manual CPR. So, Knowing that, where should you use mechanical CPR? So I've got what I call the CHESCA 7. So the seven areas where I would use mechanical CPR. One is if you're in a rural community and you have very little resources, two people responding to a cardiac arrest and that's it, well, hey, listen, you've got a lot of things to do, IVs, intubation, drugs, doing high-quality CPR in that scenario, mechanical would probably be a very good use long transport times. People get tired doing CPR and we know that there's a significant decay in CPR quality over time, long transport times. Mechanical CPR is a good place to use it. What about if you're an agency who has no idea about your CPR quality? And I've seen this in many agencies, get a mechanical device. And the reason for that is, If you're not measuring CPR quality, it's very likely that your quality is quite poor. And we saw that amongst all agencies in Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, when we started first looking at CPR quality, it was awful before we really focused. So if you're not going to focus on high quality CPR, you may benefit from mechanical CPR. Emerge departments as well. Emergency department CPR, very rarely studied. For the most part in the studies that have been done, very, very poor quality. It may be better to simply place a patient on mechanical CPR when they walk through the door. As well, the PCI lab, you cannot actually do... Good manual CPR when you're doing a PCI and someone sustains cardiac arrest. Having mechanical CPR as a backup is an excellent use uh, of mechanical CPR. And the last two are the most innovative. Uh, The first one is patients in refractory VF. The Minnesota Resuscitation Consortium doing some excellent work in patients who present in VF. They fail three successive shocks, and these patients are being transported with mechanical CPR to the cath lab where they undergo ECMO and have PCI performed for generally an LAD lesion, which is the most common cause of patients in refractor VF. That process cannot happen without the use of mechanical CPR And the last one is heads-up CPR. Heads-up CPR is actually elevation of the head during CPR, the thought that you actually prove cerebral perfusion pressure, decrease ICP, and actually do see beneficial hemodynamics, both in the heart and the brain. That process cannot actually happen while doing manual CPR. You require mechanical CPR for heads-up CPR to be successful. So those are the Cheska 7 where I would use mechanical CPR, But again, no strong evidence to improvement in outcomes. Do high quality manual CPR and you're probably going to get some fantastic outcomes.
0: All right. So just to review there, the Cheska 7 for when to consider mechanical CPR. Number one, rural environments. Number two, long transport times. Number three, places where CPR quality isn't measured. Number four, and this one kind of surprised me a bit emergency departments. Dr. Cheskis did mention that we don't provide high-quality manual CPR. If anyone out there disagrees, please email me with some evidence to the contrary. Number five, PCI Lab. Number six, Refractory VF. And lastly, the one that I didn't know much about myself is Heads Up CPR. So maybe we'll have Dr. Cheskis back on EM Cases to do a deeper dive on Heads Up CPR. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits remember that tickets go on sale for the two-day em cases course on september 18th last year it sold out in just a few hours uh, so please try and make it there so please pick up your tickets that morning it'll probably be open at 10 a.m so for this em cases course you'll get to sit around tables discussing cases and controversies with some of the best em cases experts like george kovacs walter himmel kirsten dewitt and aaron say just to name a few And then on the second day, you'll get to do high-fidelity simulations. And if you haven't checked it out yet, I know more than about 2,000 of you already have the EM Cases Quiz Vault. Almost 1,000 questions to choose from to solidify your EM knowledge from the main episode podcast. And lastly, I'm so pleased to introduce our brand new blog by Jesse McLaren, wait for it, ECG Cases a monthly blog giving you the best of the best ECG interpretation skills tips. The first blog will be published along with our main episode podcast on September 24th. And we're going to have Jesse on some of the upcoming quick hits, highlighting some of the key points that he covers in the blogs as well. So do stay tuned. Until next time, take it easy.